0: So we are actually starting this evening with a reading from God's Word and a reflection on it. If you have a Bible with you and would turn to Psalm 126, or you are welcome to use the Bibles in the pews, I know that reading might be a little difficult for a few of you because of the dimmed lights, and so I apologize for that. But Psalm 126 will be our reading. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. God's word, let's pray. Our God and Father, as we come into this time tonight, as we reflect on some heavy things, I pray that you would be with us, be with all of us sinners as we sit under your yard. Be with me, a sinner, as I preach. Amen. In, there's this novel, Everything is Illuminated, um, which is a novel that I like by this guy named Jonathan Safran Foer, and it's kind of this story about this fictionalized version of himself. I don't know if I can exactly recommend it. It's a really neat book, but it's very challenging to read. Um, but as I was thinking about Ash Wednesday and Lent and the kind of heaviness of it, I found myself reflecting on this quote, this description he gives, um, of the character who's basically himself early in the book. He describes him this way. He says, He awoke every morning with a desire to do right, to be a good and meaningful person, to be as simply as it sounded and as impossible as it actually was, happy. And during the course of each day, his heart would descend from his chest into his stomach. And by early afternoon, he was overcome by the feeling that nothing was right. Right where nothing was right for him and by the desire to be alone. And by evening he was fulfilled alone in the magnitude of his grief, alone in his aimless guilt, alone even in his loneliness. I am not sad, he would repeat to himself over and over. I am not sad. And if he might one day convince himself or fool himself or convince others, I am not sad. For whatever reason... Always resonated with that description. Not because it's beautiful or insightful, not only that, but because it betrays something really essential, I think, about my heart at least, and about many of our hearts. All of us have deep pools of sadness at places in our hearts. You can't, of, can't not have that sadness, right? There's deep pools of sadness in our world. People fail, and people betray, and people die and things don't turn out the way that we would like, and stuff breaks and passes away. We live in a world where all of that is true, but a world that is also in many ways allergic to feeling or admitting that sadness. I am not sad is in many ways what we're kind of taught to do in response to those feelings. So we distract ourselves with our televisions and our phones, and we construct these elaborate fantasy lives on the internet or through photographs and we keep busy, busy, busy because we know that if we slowed down for too long we would suddenly have to confront that kind of heaviness and the sadness might catch up. And when I talk about that, I'm not primarily talking right, about sadness that is what we would think of as sort of clinical depression. Right? There is that sort of deep shadow that certain people and certain of us wrestle under And that's a little more complicated than the sadness that we all share, because it's something that in many ways you may well need help to get out from under. But even if you're under that kind of dark shadow, right, or if you're just under that normal kind of sadness, one of the realities of our world is that we're kind of encouraged to keep it hidden all the time. Um, Admitting that sadness makes us feel like failures. Um, It's kind of a great taboo. And that can actually make those struggles a lot worse. And that taboo, that sense of failure, is why I have always thought that this season of Lent in the church calendar is so important, because Lent historically has been meant to be the season of sadness. Um, Not that we feel that sadness all the time during this season, right, Um, or all at once, that would be too much for any of us to bear, but that this is the time for us to admit it and to let ourselves feel at least a little bit of it. And so tonight, I want us to reflect a little on that sadness that somewhere I think is in every one of our hearts. It certainly is in mine. Psalm 126 that we just read is a psalm that's always been really powerful to me. It's one that I've returned to a lot, particularly in moments of deep sadness, because it perfectly articulates the reality that I feel. The first three verses recount this happy past, right? If you, if you look at it, the psalmist remembers the Lord's great works of salvation in verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. God came in salvation, and it felt so incredible that it felt like a dream, like they were sleepwalking through this, this beautiful world. And um, our mouths, in verse 2, were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. God's people were so free, so full of gladness that it spilled over and even the nations around them had to admit it. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them and the nations were right. The Lord had done great things for us and we were filled with joy. All of that, that whole first half of this psalm sounds like this happy, beautiful world, except that it's all also in its own way haunted and heartbreaking because all of those first three verses are in the past tense. They're all reflecting on a world for the psalmist that was and is no more. One of the temptations when the present is sad is always to seek to live in the past. The glory days of high school, the flush of young love, back when the kids were still at home. We try to retreat to those moments and we smile at the memories. But that only makes the present harder because these days are not those days anymore. That is the past for this psalm, a time of beauty and hope. But that is not the present. So what does the psalmist pray? Then in verse 4, he says, Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev is this desert, right? So the psalmist is praying, Lord, that's what you have done. Do it again. Life is like I'm walking in a desert and I'm parched and thirsty. Let me find water. Be a stream in the middle of that dry land. And then come the key verses, I think. At least they have been for me in 5 and 6. The psalmist prays all of this. And on the one hand, he trusts, there's this note of hope, that God will ultimately answer this prayer and bring healing. He uses this picture of a harvest in those last two verses, that those who sow will reap with songs of joy, that they will come back singing, carrying sheaves of wheat. But in the present, that is not what the psalmist expects life to be. Instead, in the present, he acknowledges two realities. One, that he is called to faithfulness even though life is weighing him down he is still called to go out into the field and plant but two that it is expected that he will go out in that faithfulness with tears indeed the promise in this psalm is for those who weep it does not say that those who sow with artificial smiles pretending as if everything is going great will reap a harvest of joy it says that those who sow with tears do Sorrowful faithfulness is what we are in many ways called to in this present age. Present will be a time of tears. And faithfulness rests in the midst of those tears for many of us and at many points in our lives, not somehow apart from them. Here's what I think that means for us in this season and in our lives. It means that there is great value in consciously acknowledging and walking through sadness. Again, not all the time but at moments at least, great value in letting ourselves feel it and admitting it. This season and tonight, in many ways, are really meant to be times where we reflect on our guilt and our mortality, which are the springs from which those tears well up. And there are a few things as countercultural really, I think, is setting aside a time to reflect on our guilt and mortality and sadness. We do everything in our power to hide them from view in our world. But I think it's deeply important for us to let them in for two reasons. First, simply because those things, our guilt, our mortality, sin, and death, they're true. They are a true part of our world. They're not the only truth. We shouldn't only be sad and penitent and downcast, but they are a part of it. I mean, I mean you think about death, right? For much of human history, death was actually something that people thought about constantly, in this age before modern medicine um, and before like the decline of things like infant mortality, before nursing homes, before hospitals, death was just a part of people's worlds, right? It wasn't shoved away to the corners. And so it was something that people actually talked and wrote about a lot. There was this whole genre of old literature called the Ars Moriandi, the art of dying, that, that was actually some of the most popular books in, in those people's day. And I've read a couple of those books from those that genre. And, and I think, as I, reflecting, as I reflect on them, I think that those people's need to confront death, the fact that they couldn't hide it away, in some ways made them better people. See, the thing about those books is that they were never about sort of morbidly, you know, obsessing about death. Rather, they were always um, calling you to, to use death, use mortality to put the rest of life in perspective. That dying well and living well went hand in hand. One of the strangest things, for example, about our modern world is the way that we view time, and in particular, how we view time as a problem. Have you ever noticed that? That that free time for us seems to be a problem that we will pay people great amounts of money to solve. That um, you know, that we feel as if, oh dear, what do I do with all of this time that I have? I need to find a way for people to take it from me and spend it. I, I, when I praise a, a TV show or a movie, right, I talk about how it made me lose track of time. And um, that's not all bad, right? Rest and entertainment are a fine and normal part of life. But there's a danger in that because if we do that... And we keep doing that, and we never reflect on it, and we just keep having people take our time from us, there does come a point where we run out of time. And what strikes me, reading people from the past, for example, is that they never saw time as a problem. Instead, they almost always saw it as a resource, as something to be spent or invested. Um, And they did that because they had that clear sense that there was an end to it, a clear sense of their mortality. Here's how the Puritan Jeremy Taylor puts it in his book from that Ars Moriendi genre, Holy Living and Holy Dying. He says, God has given to man a short time on earth, yet on that eternity depends. We must remember that we have a great work to do, many enemies to conquer, many evils to prevent, and much good to do. God has given every man work enough for the time that he has. Now, look, there is an extreme to that kind of approach that I'm not recommending either, right? Rest and entertainment, like we said, those are fine things. I'm not saying that you need to feel guilty about, you know, the, the, the hour or two before bed where you relax. Right? You don't need to walk up to somebody who's watching TV and just be like, what are you doing? Don't you recognize your impending death? You know, I mean, it's not that extreme. But I do think, when I look at my own heart, that I could spend time reflecting a little bit more on my own mortality. I think that if I did, it would challenge me relationally to hold the people that I love tighter, to tell them how I feel more often, to seek to bless them more, because life can be fleeting. And I think that if I did, it would challenge me practically. It would make me ask questions like how can I best use my time? What does it mean to live a life that, when viewed from its end, was truly good and worthwhile? and our mortality, I think, if I reflected on it, would challenge me spiritually to, you know, I mean, it's so easy for all of us to act like this show is just going to go on forever, right? But it is appointed for all of us to die and after that to face our creator. And it is worth reflecting on the question of whether or not I'm prepared for that. So it's good for us to reflect on those sad things because they're true. It is also good for us to reflect on them Because I think that only by acknowledging that sadness can we experience true joy. Only by acknowledging that sadness can we experience true joy. I think that's true emotionally, on the one hand. But to get it, we need to understand what we mean by joy, right? Joy is happiness, but it's a particular sort of happiness. We use the word happy to mean all kinds of stuff in our world, right? We can mean Happy can just mean not feeling bad, right? Just being okay. Happy can mean distracted, entertained, you know, kind of pleasantly arrested by something. Happy can mean that my appetites have been satisfied. Happiness can mean all of those things, but none of those are joy. Joy is happiness of the inner heart. It's that kind of deep feeling of celebration that spills up from the deep parts within us, Laughter that comes from the belly rather than, you know, kind of from the head. Scripture calls us to joy, but the thing about that is that the enemy of that joy is not sadness, although we often think it is. The deepest enemy of that kind of joy is shallow happiness. In the name of being happy in those shallower senses, what many of us can seek to be instead is some version of medicated I don't mean literally medicated, right? Although certainly for certain people, things like alcohol or opioids or other things like that can be a tool that we use. But medicated through distraction, through diversion, through gluttony or sloth or sin. Uh, Those things that we can just indulge, not because they're giving us that deep joy, but just to kind of keep the sadness out. And the problem As anyone who's you know, who you talk to who's physically medicated, right, can tell you is that while it does keep you from feeling really bad, it also keeps you from feeling particularly good. C.S. Lewis has this quote, and he's talking about love in particular, and about um, how loving, if you're going to love someone, you always have to open yourself up in some ways to being hurt. But here's, here's what he says, and I think it's true of all true joy. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become something unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. Which is to say... That the more we learn to feel and acknowledge our sadness, the more, in a real sense, we also learn how to rejoice. Our emotional wells kind of get deep in both directions at the same time. Or, as that author I mentioned at the beginning, Jonathan Safran Foer, puts it in another book, you cannot protect yourself from sadness without protecting yourself from true happiness, too. So, there is an emotional reality to the truth that only by experiencing sadness can we feel joy. And there's a spiritual reality to it. Lent is meant to be a season of repentance of acknowledging our sinfulness and our guilt and reflecting on how far short we fall. But here's the thing. I think it's easy for us to get confused because we can think of those practices just as ends in themselves. If we think the point of repentance is just feeling bad, um, that seems wrong. And that's because it kind of is wrong. The point of repentance the point of reflecting on our sin is that it helps us understand the greatness of what God has done in saving us. If we consider ourselves to be pretty swell people, then God's grace is really not a very significant thing. But if we understand that we are divine enemies and cosmic traitors and destroyers of the world and of other human beings, then suddenly the love and salvation of Jesus Christ becomes a really powerful thing. Our measure of the cross is always equal to our measure of our sin. Our measure of the cross is always equal to the measure of our sin. The more we realize that we are sinners, and the more that we acknowledge the darkness of this world, then the more beautiful God's work of paying for our sins and breaking into that darkness with his light start to look. And that... This is why we celebrate Ash Wednesday and Lent and why I'm inviting all of us, both tonight especially and in the coming weeks, to reflect a little bit on those hard realities. Why I think it's good for us to practice a season of sadness, because that is what makes Good Friday and Easter and the season of celebration that follows them so meaningful. Jesus has died to cleanse us from all sin. Jesus has risen for our salvation from the reign of death. Those are glorious truths, but our ability to see their glory always rests on our ability to see our need. So now tonight, we're going to spend a little bit of time acknowledging that need to our Father. If you look in your bulletin, there is a series of